Hi everyone, welcome to season two of Project Quarantines. This is an episode of a three-part series where I interviewed Dr. Samantha Yauzi, a professor of biological anthropology at Utah State University. In our episodes, we first travel to the past to understand what biological anthropology is and its importance. Then we learn about the present challenges in combating misinformation and what we can do to prevent it. And finally, we discuss the future of pandemics, public health measures, and vaccines. Please like and share, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Now, turning kind of with the same social media and heading to the future where there's going to be so much more technology, so much more globalization, what does the future of outbreaks, pandemics, and epidemics look like? There are a lot of things that are going on in the world today that are going to affect disease outbreaks, that are going to affect whether or not we can prepare for certain disease outbreaks with vaccines or with antibiotics. One of the things that is happening is people are moving globally. You know, they're they're traveling very, very long distances, very quickly. It's very important at this point. And that's something that the World Health Organization and the CDC and organizations like it throughout the world are focusing on right now. Another thing to keep in mind is when the next pandemic is going to occur. And that's really difficult for those of us who study disease in the past and are attempting to fight pathogens and part of the issue is that we can't um, we can't really nail down when it's going to happen because there's so much in human behavior that affects that sort of thing with with humans and how we act you know we we tend to live very close together most of the world lives in urban centers and so that's a really great opportunity for disease to spread we also regularly interact with each other. This is also going to help a pathogen move from person to person and place to place. And then there's also the, the different pathogens that are out there, including unknown pathogens. And they're going to vary in their behavior as well. So some viruses, like the influenza virus, they're very good at regularly developing new tactics for infecting susceptible hosts and causing disease. So we need to take that into account when we're trying to plan for the future and trying to fight some of these um, potential outbreaks and potential epidemics and pandemics that could be occurring. I realized that a, a common trait was that there's a lot of global unity in the fight against him. And that's what led to a lot of the, I guess, termination of the epidemics or pandemics going on. Absolutely. I think global cooperation and, and unity is a great first step to fighting pathogens and preventing pandemics from ever occurring. For instance, if we're talking about you know our present situation, part of the reason that we were able to produce vaccines so quickly this time around was because there are virologists throughout the world who had been studying coronaviruses 
very similar to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that we're dealing with. And they've been studying these coronaviruses for decades. You know, we had decades of research on this and ensuring that that sort of information is shared freely among um, vaccine developers, among epidemiologists and other researchers, that's going to help us respond quickly to future disease outbreaks. And we've known for a while, actually, that global cooperation and widespread socio-political support is what it takes to successfully curb the spread of diseases. A great example of this, actually, is smallpox. You know, when's the when's the last time you heard of someone having smallpox? Probably never. <laughs> Probably never. That's because the last case of community transmission was in 1977. So in 1980, the World Health Organization was able to officially declare smallpox as a disease eradicated. And that means there is zero chance of transmitting this virus, even without preventative measures in place. So this disease essentially is non-existent. And one of the reasons that we eradicated smallpox was because of this massive, widespread global vaccination program. And it had widespread social and political support. You know, there were governments worldwide who were very committed to tracking cases of the disease and vaccinating susceptible members of the population. So using the smallpox eradication program as an example, one of the things that would really help in the fight against disease and against pandemics is focusing on cooperating among different um, governments across the world and among different groups that might be researching the disease or developing vaccines and having that that unity and um, working together to administer things like vaccines or antibiotics or whatever the treatment is um, is going to be a huge step for us. And then by extension with that, um, one of the things that we need to do is make sure that whoever our public face is, which in most cases is a government official of some sort, that person or those people need to be well-versed in the science of it and, and be supportive of it. So they need to be well-versed in how vaccines work and they need to be encouraging to the general public to be confident in the decades of research that has been conducted on this disease or on the vaccine that we've developed to combat that disease. And so a little bit of unity and social unity across the world in that sense would, would go a long way to fighting some of these pathogens. Now, you did say that there's been so much research on coronaviruses, and I do want to note that coronavirus is a family of viruses, and the COVID-19 pandemic is one type of coronavirus. But the news that has come out has said that the mRNA vaccines have been a very novel discovery. So are they really safe to be administered, and do you think they would actually stop 
or prevent or even end this pandemic? Yes, absolutely. So I am more than happy to talk about mRNA vaccines because they are one of those once in a lifetime discoveries and developments that that all of us that are alive now will be able to say we were here for. mRNA vaccines are something that we've been just like with coronaviruses, we've been working on for a while. And we've, we've had the idea in our minds that they could work. And it was just about finding the right virus that we could essentially attack with this particular type of vaccines. And the way mRNA vaccines work is they essentially take information about the virus, basically the instruction book for that pathogen. And they just give your body a little bag containing those instructions. And then the body can start producing pieces of the pathogen so that the immune system can recognize it. So essentially you're taking everything that's scary about the pathogen and you're getting rid of it. And all that you're injecting into a person with this vaccine is the instruction manual for the pathogen. And so you can start producing little pieces of the pathogen that are totally incapable of causing disease. And those pieces are enough to tell the immune system, okay, this is what you're looking for. You know, this, this dangerous pathogen is going to have this particular little flag, this protein on the outside of the cell that enters your body. And so if you see a cell that has this flag, this protein on the outside, attack it, remove it from the system. And so the, the idea behind mRNA vaccines, essentially removing a lot of the danger that is posed to a variety of, of different people in receiving vaccines, it, it's a breakthrough of monumental proportions. Um, and we've been trying for years to figure out what pathogens it would work with. We tried it on the rabies virus. We've right. tried it on the Zika virus. And so far, the one that has worked without a doubt is coronaviruses. And so we were able in about 12 months to take this, this novel coronavirus and put it with this technology that we've been working on and that we've been developing for, for a very long time and make it work. And it has now provided immunity and protection for a lot of people that would not have been protected and would be susceptible to this disease otherwise. And they've been very effective so far. Um, even with the advent of new variants, like the Delta variant that has just come out and is causing a lot of problems in the U.S. right now, um, even against new versions of this virus, um, it's still very, very effective. These, these vaccines are very effective. Um, and so it's a, it's a great thing to be present for in a scientific sense, is seeing this new treatment measure not only work, but work very, very well. So jumping back to a social perspective, 
effective against fighting or they're very effective in preventing the pandemic from spreading uh, for a longer time. We see that distribution of the vaccines have been not so great. And actually, I did take a poll of Governor School West students in North Carolina on how great our distribution has been. And 78% of the Governor School, Governor School students have said that our, we are not distributing our vaccines properly at all throughout the United States and globally. And after around 200 years of vaccine development, which is when the first vaccines were created, why do we still lack the right strategies to distribute and, you know, provide e equitable access to the vaccines across the globe? Part of what we are struggling with now with vaccine distribution and administration is ensuring that we have a uniform system for contacting people and getting a hold of people that could benefit from the vaccine, convincing them of the, the effectiveness of these vaccines, and then arranging for them to actually be present for vaccine administration. You know, our lives are, are so built up with so many things going on that a two-dose vaccine can become very inconvenient for us. And so one of the things that is really important when developing vaccines, if we have the opportunity to manage this aspect of it, which sometimes we don't, um, is making sure that the vaccine is, is easily administered and can be administered globally, regardless of the social situation of whoever's administering the vaccine. So, for example, I mentioned smallpox earlier. The part of the reason that the smallpox eradication program was so successful is they had that global support I was talking about, but they also had a very easy to administer vaccine. You know, it, it didn't need to be refrigerated to the point that it was constantly frozen or anything like that. So it didn't require special refrigeration units. It didn't require any special knowledge on the behalf of doctors to administer the shot. So you could very easily train someone in 10 minutes how to give a smallpox vaccine. And so one of the aspects that's going to determine how easily a vaccine is administered and how um, successful that vaccination program is, is how easily you can give that vaccine to someone and have them administer it to people. Because you want to make sure you're considering the fact that some areas like New Zealand, for example, are going to be very committed to getting all of their population vaccinated. So they're going to have a great administration program. Whereas some other areas, particularly areas of the world that are economically underdeveloped or that are um, composed largely of rural populations, they're going to struggle with getting information out to people. They're going to struggle with um, administering vaccine and having capable individuals who can administer the vaccine to large portions right. of the population. And so you need to make sure that 
regardless of whether you're placed in New Zealand or in this rural setting, that you can still get this vaccine out to people. So making it easy to administer is definitely important and trying to establish some uniformity in how we talk about it and in how we arrange for things like vaccine administration appointments is important. Now, one of the things I think the U.S. kind of stumbled on was telling people how to get access to the vaccine and ensuring that they didn't get frustrated with the process. For me personally, I had to check local websites, like 20 different websites, to figure out, okay, who had doses, who has appointments available to get vaccines. And so I had to be very committed to that to get my vaccine in a timely manner. If someone is less than convinced about the efficacy of vaccination, they're not going to waste their time. They're not going to devote a lot of time to trying to get a vaccine like that. So ensuring a little more uniformity in how and how they're distributed and administered would, would definitely be helpful. How do you think that the government should go across the globe, not just in the United States, but how do you think that governments should handle not just pandemic information, but information in science as well? Because I know it's a huge concern to a lot of people that the government is not always being the most transparent at times. So what do you think, or what are your thoughts on what the government can do or what the community can do to bring more awareness to misinformation and also bring more awareness to things like looking at 20 different websites to find your vaccine. How can we make these processes more streamlined and better? The first thing we need to do is just on a very basic level, ensure people can be confident in science and in scientists. We need to be, and and globally, you know, our governments need to be committed to supporting science and supporting scientific administrations. If we are lacking or if the general public worldwide is lacking in confidence, then no matter how good our vaccination program is or no matter how perfect the website is where you, you go to sign up for an appointment, it doesn't matter because the public is not invested in it, right? So we need to be getting information out there in a way that people can understand. Um, And that's one of the main things that's going to decide whether or not people trust a source is if they understand it. And so making sure we limit misinformation, but also making sure we can translate our our research and our findings into a kind of comprehensible and and digestible version for people who may not be as scientifically literate as some of the rest of us um, is important. And beyond that, you know, say we do get a lot of confidence from the general public. We also need to work together and and not have five ways for doing something when one way would work. So we need to 
ensure that whoever is in charge of developing vaccination websites or places where you can set up appointments or, or what have you, we need to make sure that that is being distributed to everyone so that we don't have five people trying to reinvent the wheel each each time. So a little bit more cooperation, a little bit more confidence is is one of is gonna be one of the main things I think that's going to affect us in the future. All right. Well thank you so much, Dr. Yazi, for being here. It was such a great time to have you on the podcast and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Yazi, for an amazing interview and a special thanks to all of the listeners. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes and I hope you all have a great day.